Thank you, Mary. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we're going to jump straight in. We are in a five-part series on communion. This is part two. Uh, Murray started us off a few weeks ago um, <clears throat> and began to teach us that communion is about the remembrance that Christ is our Passover. And then in the same way in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were getting ready to be delivered out of Egypt... And there was a final plague. There was a final act of God which consisted of the angel of death sweeping through the city and taking the life of every firstborn son. But the instructions were given to the Israelites, to the children of Israel, that if they sacrificed a lamb and painted the blood upon the doorposts of their residence, then the angel of death would pass over them and thus securing them for the liberation of their bondage to Egypt. And in the same way, Christ is our Passover lamb. But more than just pass over death, he passes through death and conquers it and is resurrected on the other side, thus liberating us from the clutches and the bondage of our enemy. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news of the kingdom, that we have been set free and that we have been set free because of the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Today we're going to talk about covenant and we're going to talk about forgiveness. And really the idea of this sermon is, um, I want to make a bold and courageous declaration that religion is ended. And more importantly, the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that comes with any type of attempt or mindset within us that wants to strive and to work in order to find favor with God has been completely destroyed and demolished at the cross. Amen. Okay. Matthew 26. This is the last supper. Jesus says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said to them, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The essence of the new covenant that we have in Jesus' blood is one of forgiveness. And we're going to get to that. But before we do, I want to go to Hebrews 9. Um, the writer of Hebrews from... Chapter 7 onwards has been digging down into the Old Testament and bringing up various images and symbols and realities that were found in the Old Covenant. He's talking about priests and he's talking about tabernacles and he's talking about the Day of Atonement and he's talking about the sacrifice of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of blood that would be a means of refreshing and cleansing for the people of Israel. But then he says, but it was not sufficient to give us a clean conscience. For the blood that was sacrificed of bulls and goats could only clean the outside. And we were in need of a much more deeper cleansing, the cleansing of our inner man. And it is the clean conscience that we so desired as humanity that now the writer begins to describe as available in Christ Jesus. In verse 15, he says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 
Now that he has died as a ransom to set us free from the sins committed under the law. He goes on to describe and uses language like will and testament and basically begins to explain the very concept that a will is not put into effect until there's a death. And we know this too well in our present society that an inheritance and a will is only released when the provider and the creator of that will passes away. And the writer says, it's no different than with Jesus. Verse 23, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was but a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. Most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. This is, this is it right here. But he has appeared once and for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. He continues in chapter 10 and verse 11, and he begins to talk about, again, driving this point home. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again and again, offering the same sacrifices, but to no avail. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are holy. This is resolute. The language here is profound. It's explosive. He's saying this thing is without ceasing. It is without end. It is forever. It is complete. It is perfect. It is the fulfillment. It goes all the way. It is sufficient. It is necessary. It is final. And it is for us, the sanctified, ones who have been made holy, ones who have been set apart for righteousness in his blood. He then begins to echo Jeremiah 31, 34, verse 16. This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, this is beautiful. Their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. For as far as the east is from the west, is how far I have removed your transgressions from me. And I have placed them into a sea of forgetfulness. And I heard a preacher once say, then he puts up a sign that says, no fishing. But so often we do. So often we go fishing around and swimming around into our past, recalling 
our sin and recalling our past life and recalling our transgression and, re- and bringing him up to remembrance. And with it, the guilt and the shame and the condemnation and the regret of our past life now becomes the very dominating force that governs our present reality. And he says that the covenant that has been made in my blood has been once and for all for the removal of your sin, even the memory of it. So what is not in God's mind, why would you allow in your own? Where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. (laughs) Friends, we have a covenant. And it is a covenant that has provided our forgiveness. And it's important to understand this word covenant. It's such a deeply profound, the implications, the actual essence of what it is. Um, There's essentially two kinds of covenant, if I get technical for just a second. There is a bilateral covenant, which means two parties, bi and lateral, two-sided. And a bilateral covenant is when two parties come into equal agreement with terms and conditions which they have agreed to fulfill in order to both get a required benefit or outcome, right? Think of a trade agreement, okay? This is more akin to a contract. A contract is where I have obligations to fulfill in order to step into the benefit of the agreement. The alternative is a unilateral covenant. Uni meaning single, lateral meaning sided. This is a one-sided covenant. This is a promise made by one party to another, much like the kings of Israel, when in their inauguration they would address the people and they would say, as your king today, I promise to be this. I promise to do that. As a king, this is my declaration. I will be slow to anger. I will provide economic freedom. I will provide a society and and blessing to you that you might thrive and prosper. Whatever it is, it is the promise of a king for the people, not with the people. That the responsibility of the people who hear the promise is to simply receive it, is to simply believe it, and to simply act as if it is true. All right, you can see where this is going. I want to go to Genesis 15, and I want to look at Abraham just to drive this point home. It's a beautiful story. Genesis 12, God shows up to Abraham and begins to make promises to him regarding his offspring and regarding the land of promise and inheritance. In Genesis 15, it's 10 years after that original promise, and nothing, it seems, has come to pass in Abraham's life. He has went out and rescued his wayward nephew Lot, and he has conquered the enemy that held him. He has won the battle, he has divided the spoils, and now it is the morning after the war. And it says in Genesis 15 that the Lord visits Abraham in his tent and declares, Abraham, don't be afraid. I am your shield and I am your great reward. To which Abraham says, okay, that's cool. I like the fact that I'm protected from the enemy in any backlash, but what about this reward? What reward can you give me if I don't have a son to pass it on to? Of what value is the reward if I have no one to provide an inheritance to? And so it says that God took Abraham out of the tent 
And he pointed his gaze up toward the stars and he says, look at the stars in the sky if you can count them, so shall your descendants be. And then it says, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Wow. Paul later, when he's preaching the gospel to the Romans, he plants his flag in this story of Abraham in Romans 4. And he begins to say that this is the very foundation of the covenant that we have in Christ. The Lord then says to, Mo, says to Abraham, uh, you're going to have the offspring, but you're also going to get the land. For I brought you out of the land of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you a land of inheritance. And this is what I'm also going to do for you. Abraham again, he responds, uh, how do I know you're telling the truth? How can I be sure that this promise will come true? And then something bizarre happens. God responds to that question by saying, go and get a bunch of calves and bulls and goats and chickens and pigeons and bring them before me. And then it says that Abraham went about cutting the animals in half and placing one side of the animal on one here and the other side of the animal on this side. And there was a pool of blood in the middle. And that sounds crazy to us. But it wouldn't have been crazy to Abraham. This was a very real, very poignant um, tradition in the ancient Near East. What would happen is that two nations or two tribes or two chieftains or two leaders or two people would come into an agreement, let's say a trade agreement, and one nation would say, if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trade you wheat, and the other nation said, so, well, I'm going to trade you oil. And as, a, and as a, a seal of our agreement, we're going to have this ritual. We're going to have a ceremony. And it involved the cutting of animals to form a covenantal promise. And this is what would happen. One party would stand at one end, and one party would stand at the other end, and they would both pass through the animals. And essentially what they were saying was this. If I fail in the obligation of my side of the covenant, may my destiny be that of these animals. That this is a life or death situation. Now, what happens next? Abraham arranges the pieces, the covenant is set up, he gets ready, he takes his place at the side, he knows the deal, and it says all of a sudden Abraham fell into a deep sleep. And it says that he was surrounded by thick darkness. And I can't help but read that and think of all of the images in the Psalms and Isaiah where it says that God himself dwells in thick darkness. That Abraham was somehow transported into a state that wasn't just napping and dreaming and Z's and pizza. He was transformed, transported into a reality, into the very presence and heart of God himself. There's someone else who was in a deep sleep. Adam. That word tademach, it's so rare in the old covenant. These are the two prominent ways it is used. Abraham is in a deep sleep and Adam is in a deep sleep. And when Adam is put into a deep sleep, God extracts a bride from his side. And in the same way, Jesus, who is but the fulfillment of the shadow, becomes the last Adam. And not only does he fall into a deep sleep, which is the ultimate sleep, death, but he conquers it. 
And through his side in the washing of the water that poured from it, Christ would extract a bride for all of eternity. Christ is the fulfillment. And in the same way that, that Abraham is now sleeping, and this is what happens when Abraham is asleep, God just goes ahead with the ceremony of the covenant. It says that this cauldron of blazing fire appeared at one end and it began to pass through, thus fulfilling the obligation of the cut of the covenant. And God begins to say to Moses, while he's sleeping, this is my promise. This is what I'm going to do. This is my covenant toward you. What was Abraham's role? Abraham's role was completely passive. And this is the image of the covenant that we have in Christ. For in the same way that Abraham was sleeping when the covenant was made, we too were sleeping in our transgressions when God died for the ungodly. That whilst we were yet sinners, he laid down his life for us. This is the nature of of the new covenant in his blood. Forgiveness has been made available to us and it has got nothing to do with our performance. I do not engineer righteousness. I do not muster up good works. I do not trial and I do not climb the ladder of religion and I do not forge ahead. No, I simply relax. The Bible in the New Testament uses this word again and again and again. For those who trust, believe, receive, participate. It's a gift. It's not a work. Our forgiveness comes to us free of charge. What is forgiveness? Very simple. It's a release or a pardon and most commonly used in the terms of economics and debt. I, I have creditors, I have borrowed some money, I can't pay it back. I am now in debt to the one who borrowed me money, and it becomes a burden. And unless there is a forgiveness of that debt, unless there is either a wiping away of that debt, or unless there is a payment back for that debt, then I stand as one who is condemned under the debt that hangs over me. I have a good story. When, um, when we were pregnant with Raya, our firstborn, um, we have complicated pregnancies, requires a lot, of, a lot of care, a lot of visits to the doctor, requires surgery, requires a lot of oversight, and um, our child was born premature, and we had all of these complications and issues. Praise be to God that she was born and healthy and whole and she's amazing. Raya, many of you know her. But what came out of that pregnancy was a medical bill. That medical bill was $169,000. And I had an insurance policy and, um, and I paid the policy in full, but the, the insurance company were refusing to pay out. And they were just giving me the runaround. And they were saying it's a pre-existing condition. And they were, they were saying all types of craziness and madness. And eventually I had to fight and I had to strive and I had to contend. And I'm 
at one point at UNC in the auditorium, I got pretty animated and loud and aggressive. And <laughs> but I got my way. And they eventually paid out. But what was left was a bill of $42,000. The $42,000 was not in Ashling's name. It was in Raya's name. And the insurance company refused to pay because she wasn't on the original policy, obviously. <laughs> and so for 18 months to two years, we continue to get the letters and the emails and the attempted phone calls. Where's our money? We want our $42,000. And then the letters become red and then they go to creditors and on and on and on and on it goes. And we apply for gift aid and we apply for this stuff and everything gets rejected and everything gets knocked back because we're not American citizens and it becomes a trial and a burden. And then we think, but we want another child. We're ready for another child. And we want to go back to UNC because they were absolutely amazing. And they took care of us and it was a miracle and through the genius of the doctors, we got a healthy baby and we want to do the same again. But we can't go because we already have this debt. One night, me and Ashling are just, just sat watching TV, chatting, listening to worship on YouTube, and the songs are going, you know how it is, one song ends and then another one comes on and then we just kind of lost track and we're just chit-chatting, it's nothing serious, it's not, it's not deep, we weren't praying, we weren't fasting. We're just chatting and listening to some music. And then the next track that comes on is not a song, but it's a teaching. And Georgian Banov, it's a little seven-minute teaching. It's Georgian Banov is in Bethel Church. And he's teaching on the year of Jubilee. And he's saying how 2016 is the Jubilee of Jubilees. It's the 50th of the 50th. And this is even more significant. And this is something profound. And if you're in debt... Then would you stand and we will pray for supernatural forgiveness? And so me and Ashling are in our living room. We stand up, we hold hands, we repeat the prayer, and we sit down and forget about it. Until the next morning when we wake up to an email from UNC Chapel Hill with our balance at $173. <laughs> yes and so I get my debit card out and I'm ready to pay the final bit and I'm typing in the numbers and all of a sudden I get this check wait a minute God's not the God of 99.9% .9 breakthrough surely if God can wipe out 41,000 he can wipe out this last couple of hundred for God is the God of 100% deliverance Come on. So I put my card in my pocket and I forget all about it until two days later on the Friday morning, we get another email. Balance, zero, point, zero, zero. No explanation, no justification, no reason, nothing. Just a balance sheet, zero, point, zero, zero. Now, what was my role in this? What did I do to receive it? 
I didn't do anything. All I had to do that was to believe it would be true. Imagine if I didn't. And he began to set up a payment plan and a direct debit and paying 500 bucks a month for the next thousand years and all the rest of it. <laughs> and this is what we often do with our lives and our relationships with God. That we don't understand that the debt has been wiped clean and it was nothing of my ability. I did not get a line of credit. I did not apply for a loan. I did not set up a payment plan. I did not file the paperwork. I did not petition my line manager. I did not even do the final act of pressing delete on the keyboard. All of that was the work of another party. Do you see? <laughs> do you see? That we do not even lift a finger to secure this great work. It is of him and it is through him and it is to him. T.F. Torrance says this about covenant. Divine covenants have their source in the divine initiative, in the loving heart of God. God conceives of the covenant, God announces it, he confirms it, and he establishes it, and he carries it through to fulfillment, and the entire motivation is love. This is the covenantal forgiveness that is available in Christ Jesus. One Corinthians one twenty two, uh, Paul says this. He says that the Jew demands a sign, and the Greek looks for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal to the Jew, and foolish to the Greek. But in Christ and to those who have been called, both Jew and Greek, he is both the wisdom and power of God. You see, I can understand the terminology of the Greeks and the foolishness because they were all very intellectual and, and puffed up with their politics and their philosophy. And so they hear news of some Middle Eastern man dying on a, on a tree and it's all myth and fairy tale and they dismiss it as foolishness. But I'm more interested in why it will be a scandal to the Jew and the answer is very simple. Because Paul was preaching Christ crucified and through that finished work, now a covenant was made available to all of humanity that says... It is not your works, but his. And the Jew would respond, this is scandalous. How dare you say that circumcision isn't required? How dare you say that the Ten Commandments don't need to be kept? How dare you say that it is a gift? How dare you say that I receive it free of charge? How dare you say that Kanye West is a child of God? I've seen no evidence, I've seen no fruit, I've seen no repentance. So until I've seen him walk it out, we're gonna put forgiveness and grace just over here on reserve and we're not gonna continue in cynicism and skeptical behavior until we see the evidence that is sufficient for me to change my mind. And friends, this is the reality. The church is divided over this. You don't need to be on social media and to see, this guy yesterday 
Kanye is working for the Illuminati to deceive the church. He's part, he's the Antichrist. And it is for this, it is with this very mindset. Because they cannot accept. That God's forgiveness is so powerful. It's so radical. It's so unconditional that it would cry, whosoever may come. I want to suggest to you that forgiveness precedes repentance. That repentance is the response to the gospel of forgiveness. It is not a condition. And what we want of Kanye is that we want the condition of repentance. And I ask myself, like, what? What What are you looking for? Like 100 million followers on social media and he releases an album called Jesus is King and that's not enough? (laughs) Paul said, I don't care how the gospel's preached. He's preaching the gospel. Number one on the billboard with his album. Hundreds of millions of followers. People, countless testimonies. I'm a total atheist. But I'm searching Christianity on Google. Apparently the greatest trend in the last two weeks on Google is what is Christianity? And yet, and yet the religious mind that sees the gospel of grace as a scandal would say, oh yeah, we'll see. Let's see how this plays out. I'm going to reserve my judgment for now. Thank you very much. The one condition is belief. When we believe, we receive. But the evidence of us receiving is participation. That my participation involves running headlong into the God who has provided this great gift for me. He says, come as you are. But the promise is not to leave you as you are. You see, he's the master painter. And you're the piece of art. And when you come to him, you've got cobwebs and dirt and the colors have faded and the frame might be broken. And it's a, it's, it is a shadow of what the original intention should have been. But Christ is the master painter with delicacy and precision and intention and foreknowledge of who he created you to be begins to work on your life and begins to touch it up and he begins to color it. And it becomes a work of restoration. That your life in God is one of restoration but I have to yield, I have to surrender, I have to submit. I've got a little illustration here. Okay. God sits, God sits on a chair. We sit on a chair. I've accepted his provision of grace. I now have a clean conscience. I'm now in right relationship with God, not based upon anything that I have done, but based upon everything that he has done. However, when we have a theology 
And when we have a gospel that says that you must do something first in order to continue to receive it, what we end up is this, and I believe this is not uncommon. Everything's great. Take this on a weekly basis. Sunday, right now, awesome. Connected with God, feeling his presence, glory, anointing, joy, everything's amazing until tomorrow. And that thing that's been plaguing you for your entire life begins to raise its ugly head. And as you do that, you begin to falter and you begin to doubt and shame creeps in and guilt is covering you until you begin to think he's disappointed. I've done it again. And before long, I've turned my back. But what is more sinister is that I've turned my back because I believe at the same time as I am turning, he is also turning. And we go from being face to face to back to back. Once again, enemies of God. Until Sunday, back in the worship, coming into the preaching, receiving the forgiveness, everything's awesome, baptizing the Holy Ghost, woohoo, everything's awesome. And guess what? The same's happening on the other side. I feel his presence again. I can see him. It's face to face. Everything's beautiful. Everything's wonderful until Monday. And guys, this is what ends up happening. We just spin and we spin and we spin and we spin. Because we believe that our performance is causing him to spin and to spin and to spin. So one step forward becomes two steps back. And while salvation is free, maturity will cost you everything. This is maturity. In fact, let me say this. This is the dilemma of backsliding. The dilemma of backsliding is when a believer is in relationship with God, yet as he continues to spin and spin and spin, out of control, he finally comes to the conclusion that I can't do this. Which is the right conclusion? But the backslider says, that's it, I've had enough, I'm turning my back, and I'm long gone. Instead of turning their back, the one who was struggling in sin must first then turn and run not away from the presence of God, but into the presence of a God who sits on the throne of grace that does not spin. This is the gospel. His face is fixed. He's not spinning. He'll not leave you nor forsake you. He's not turning his back on you. He's not disapproving of you. Regardless of how much you spin, your sin is not powerful enough to change the heart of God and overcome the covenant that is in his blood. That, my friends, is the gospel. And if you're struggling today with this schizophrenic, in, out, heaven, hell, love, hate type relationship with God, that's what I came to destroy. If you live your life like Paul in chapter 7 and say, who will rescue me from this body of death? What I want to do, I cannot do. And what I do not want to do, I do. Who will rescue me? What a wretched man I am.
praise be to God that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation because the covenant that has been made in his blood has caused his mind to be fixed and there is no double mindedness in the father am I saying you can do what you want no this was the objection raised in Romans 5 and 6 remember when that Jew who thought the whole thing was a scandal says, what are you saying, Paul? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, no. Do you not know that you are dead to sin? Do you not know that you are now alive in God? Why would you want to live that life when you've been set free? In Romans 6.11, he says, now therefore, children, reckon yourselves dead unto sin and alive in God. That's King James, that reckoning is, a, it is an economic term. It simply means at the end of the day of business, you reckon up. You count the money, sales and income and all the rest of it. Paul is basically saying, friends, do the math. And realize that your balance sheet is now 0.00. We can't do what we want if we want to stay in communion with him. But the Bible is clear, I believe, that we do have freedom to push back on this great love. That we can choose to reject it. That we can choose to walk away. We can choose to squander the gift. It's almost like I just passed my driving test. I've been driving around in a Prius. And now my dad hands me a V12 AMG Mercedes-Benz 6 Series. And he sends me to the Autobahn in Germany where they don't have speed limits. And this thing can get cranked up to 200 miles an hour. And I'm a brand new driver. And in my freedom... Not only do I put myself at risk, my passengers at risk, and everyone else on that road at risk, the inevitability is that I will eventually trash the gift and trash the car and ruin my life. And this is the response of the gospel. Don't trash your life. It is for freedom that you have been set free. Don't waste your freedom spinning your life out of control. Friends, the good news is this. I'm not the man I need to be. Not the man I want to be. Not the man that I hope to be in the future as I allow God to work in my life. But thank God I'm not the man that I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Friends, we're going to take communion. We're going to take it and then we're going to come back to our seats and we're going to minister for five or ten more minutes. So if you go now, do it soberly, stay in this moment. Maybe just even do it in silence. And then come back.
we can never know what it truly cost. Nor do we have words that can describe this love. All we have is an image of the crucified God hanging on a tree, bleeding and dying for me. For whilst we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly and makes the invitation. For whosoever shall believe in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, if there's anyone in this room and you do not know of the grace and the love and the unconditional nature of God's relationship to us, and you have not yet entered into the receiving of the gift of life, then I urge you to say yes. I urge you to receive the gift. And if that's you and you're sat here, it's just a simple prayer. God, I believe you. I believe everything the man just preached. I don't quite fully understand it, but I know something is beating inside of my heart in a place that I've never quite known. That's the Holy Spirit drawing you into the gift of life. Just say yes. We don't have words. All we have is an image. And when we take communion, we bring to remembrance that image. And remembrance is stretching back into time and taking a memory and bringing it to total recall in such a way that a past memory becomes a present reality. And as we drink of the cup and as we eat of the body, we are bringing to remembrance that very image. And for me, in that image, it is at Calvary that God looks at me. And he sees me as the crowd who call for his death. And he sees me as Pilate who passively gave the people what they wanted even though he shouldn't. I am the scribe and the Pharisees who had been plotting his death for months. But ultimately, I am the Roman soldier with a hammer in my hand malevolently driving a nine-inch nail into his wrists. And it is in this moment where he opens his eyes and says, Michael, I forgive you, for you know not what you do. Go ahead and drink the cup and eat of the body that has been provided for you. And as you do, 
enter into a divine exchange. God, I give you my guilt. I give you my shame. Condemnation is illegal. Father, forgive me. I receive it. I felt God say, tell the people to fill their bellies. Tell the people just to fill up to overflowing on the forgiveness of the cup that has no end. Like the widow's oil that just kept pouring as long as there was an empty vessel. As long as I have no righteousness of my own, then I am an empty vessel, perfect for the outpouring of his blood. Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he begins to quote Jesus from Matthew 25 but at the end he adds this fascinating statement he says every time we do this in remembrance of him we proclaim his death until he comes it is a proclamation it's a prophecy it is speaking into existence the promises of a covenant that was made in his blood. For if the blood of Abel is able to speak from the ground, how much more is the eternal blood of the word of God able to prophesy life into the believer? For Paul is describing this very thing and he says, for he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, will he now not graciously with him give us all things? Friends, it's in a moment like this, as we take communion, that the very act becomes a prophecy to impart to your life everything that you need for life and godliness. That's the promise of the covenant. So we're going to take a few moments and I want you to do business with God. We're in no hurry. This is significant. Yeah. 